welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Morning, everyone. My name is uh, John. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Uh, we're in for a real treat this morning for the last speaker, essay speaker of the conference. Uh, I told him I was going to embarrass him because he's a young guy, which is always fun. But I'm going to call him the elder statesman of uh, recovery today. And he's only 25. That's the crazy part. The interesting thing is, is this young man came into recovery when he was a teenager. And he's been in the program for five and a half years. And the things that he's exemplified as far as recovery have been amazing. And... Um, his commitment to working his steps, his commitment to helping others, being of service. He gave me his bio, but I can't read it because it would take 20 minutes. In five and a half years. But it does my heart warmth to know that someone at that age came into recovery and has stuck with it and can, and can show others that it can be done. And so... One of the real interesting things, what I think is special, is that he started out down in San Diego, and he um, left there and went up to L.A. and started a meeting up there at 25. That's amazing. So I'd like to introduce this uh, elder statesman right now, and uh, his name is Christian M., Thank you. Hi, I'm Christian M. And I'm a sexaholic. And before I start, I really want to thank the committee and thank, thank you so much for letting me be of service in this way. And uh, when I was first approached, I thought, oh my gosh, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> and here I am, by the grace of God. So without further ado, here we go. Um, Growing up, I, I remember being really interested and infatuated with the human body. I, I would pull down women's blouses and I would look up women's skirts and I would get beaten for that by my father. And I, I know they did the best they could with the resources that they had, but I guess for me it wasn't good enough. And, uh, now looking back at it, my life kind of seems like the beginning of this odd joke. Like, what do you get when you mix a nun and a magician? Well, you get me. A guy that has a magical relationship with God. And it's true, thanks to this program. And um, my mother was in a convent for a majority of her childhood, and then when I was growing up, my father was a professional magician. So when I was a teenager, it was really hard for her to relate to me at all. And... Growing up, she was a nurse, and she would work the night shifts, and she would sleep all day. 
my father would be busy with uh, his multiple jobs and then multiple affairs. I remember finding condoms in his car, things he would use to act out with, and meeting his mistresses, and finding his pornography growing up. And I, I remember feeling very isolated and alone growing up. We lived in a different part of town than where I would go to school, so I never really hung out with people. I had a lot of time to be on my own. And uh, the only... The only happy childhood memory I can think of right now is just me being alone in my room playing Legos. And uh, when, I, when I first discovered sex, well, when I heard for, first heard about sex was when I was seven years old. My sister and her friend were talking about it, and I would not leave them alone. I just kept bugging them, like, what is sex? And I was yelling around the house because they kept talking about it. <laughs> and... They finally told me, and I felt like, that's not a big deal. And I realized I had seen that, whatever they were talking about, in movies. Because growing up, my parents' favorite movies were rated R movies. And I grew up watching a lot of horror movies, which tied into my acting out later on, how I always sought this adrenaline rush. And... I remember I was 10 years old and I was on a I was on a computer and I was bored, tired and lonely and I was curious and typed in the word porn. And my life changed ever since then. Cuz I immediately closed the page cuz I was so afraid of what I just had seen and I left I let the euphoric rush of adrenaline pass. And then I went back. And I I didn't tell anyone, and that's when I started to act out. And I would do that occasionally for about, I don't know, I, it seems like probably every two weeks, but it progressed. And by the time I was 12, I had introduced it to a couple of friends. I was that guy that everyone shares about, like, oh, my friend showed me this magazine. I was the guy that introduced it to my friends. Because I wanted to normalize it, because I knew what I was doing wasn't right. It felt different, wrong. And I wanted to feel normal. And also, the people I was hanging out with were all the, the loners, and I remember being scolded at by my father when I was 13. He's like, why do you always wear black? And I was like, that's what I like wearing. And uh, I still love wearing black all the time. And uh, so I felt comfortable sharing it with them. I introduced it to my friend that was a girl. We started watching it together. And this was just junior high. And then I introduced it to my friend that was a guy. And we started watching it together. And then that's when uh, we crossed a boundary. And I started act- I acted out with, with my friends. And I thought that that would feel better, and it didn't. So I thought, oh, maybe maybe I need to have more people involved. So then I started hosting uh, co-ed boy and girl sleepovers when I was in junior high, and uh, it, was, it was just like lust to do this to me. I was the only guy left out at my own party. <laughs> and everyone else was acting out, just not me. And still, it didn't feel normal. So... 13, 14, I can feel my thoughts are changing, and I'm thinking, this is really weird. Like, 
people would just walk by me and I would think, yeah, I'd have sex with them. Yeah. I was just so desperate for that. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was getting enough attention at home. Like I shared, my parents were very busy and neglectful, I suppose, from my perspective. And, uh, I, I think that's when my mother discovered all of my father's stuff. Sexaholism was running, running through my family's life while I was growing up and I wasn't aware, even aware of it. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like him, my father. Little did I know that his sex addiction would rub off on me. So discovery happened. I was 13. He, uh, he left the house and they started their divorce and I started cutting myself and I dove into pornography so much deeper. And the, the thing that I just wanted to do was just feel something. And when I was, when I was cutting myself, that's what I was feeling. And then when I was acting out, it was just this relief and it was a sanctuary and it didn't seem like a bad thing, but I was really confused because the stuff that I was watching, I knew wasn't something that I wanted, but it was progressive and I was powerless and I felt like I had no other choice. So they started their divorce and uh, I had this friend that would come pick me up because he was my only friend in high school that had a car and he would come rescue me and it was great. And uh, a little after the beginning of their divorce or midway through their divorce, he was killed by a drunk driver and I dove into my addiction even further. I remember reading the news article online and thinking, porn wouldn't do this to me. So then I thought about looking to porn. And I continued to, to dive into those websites that I was on, and I created relationships and accounts, and I I started talking to this man on one of those websites, and I wanted to escape. I wanted to escape so bad, because I didn't want to deal with my parents' divorce, and I didn't want to deal with my best friend's death, so then I let this man convince me that it'd be a good idea to go visit him in another country. This person I didn't know. And I let lust put a price on me, and... He helped pay for my ticket, and I confused everyone because I thought I was the best liar I knew. I was the best manipulator, you know, all deceiving. And I told my mother I was going to go camping for a week. I told my father I, was, I needed to get dropped off at the airport because I was going to go study abroad for a week. And then I told my friends I was going to go visit family out of town. So I confused everyone, but no one was talking to each other. And <laughs> lost this cunning, baffling, and powerful. I got dropped off at the airport by my father, and I said, all right, Dad, thanks. I see my classmate. Bye. And I left and flew to this other country, and needless to say, was sexually abused. And I was there for a week and was introduced to deeper, darker depths of this addiction, and I saw what my future would look like in this man. I knew this is where I'm going to end up, and I didn't like it. And I cried the entire plane ride back. And I, just, I remember I was just sitting next to a stranger and I like had my head towards the window. Like my entire body was just crunched up in a ball facing the window and just sobbing. Cause I was so confused cause I did what I thought I wanted to do, but I didn't want to do that. And I was so confused. So I came back, um, now in the middle of high school and, uh, kind of playing it off that I'm religious out of my group of friends because <laughs> I was attending I was attending this faith tradition 
Um, as I said, my mother was in a convent, so she kind of told me about God a little bit, but I didn't really know him. And and when I got back, I started going to the gym before high, before my classes at, in high school, and um, noticed that this one this one person was acting out to me in a shower, and I was first appalled and disgusted, and I thought, why? And then my curiosity got to the best of me, and I started acting out with strangers in those public places, which progressed to other public places and meeting up with them in other areas of town. And then heard about websites where I could meet up with people to have anonymous sex, because I thought this is what I needed, and I thought it would relieve me, and it would save me and rescue me, and I was powerless over it. And I was losing sleep for it, and my studies weren't that good. And then I turned 18, and I thought, finally, I'm legal. Everything's going to be okay. Everything I've ever wanted to do, I can go try, and it'll be done. I'll be saved. I'll be fine. And that week, I hit new bottoms. I, I went to a strip club, adult bookstore, porno shop, and started going to bathhouses. And um, each one was worse than the last. And... Yeah. I thought that the next one was going to be better and that it was going to be okay. And it wasn't. It just got worse and worse and worse. And I kept going back to those places. And I was just consuming so much lust and being introduced to so much lust that I I started acting out with drugs because I wanted to feel a higher high because I that's what I thought would help and that's what I thought would fix me. And so my life, was, my life was becoming unmanageable. Um, by this point, I had moved to San Diego because I went to go study uh, at a university down there. And everything I did sucked, as I said. Uh, I was getting like these C's and B's, and um, I was lucky to get those B's. And um, also at this point, I hadn't seen my father in a, in a couple years. He, he disappeared after my parents' divorce ended when I was 17. You know, it's that whole magician thing. (laughs) And I haven't seen him since. Um, But I've been able to see how the sexaholism that ran rampant in his life took everything that he loved and cared about, everything in his life. I saw it destroy our, our lives, and I saw it destroy our family. And he lost all his houses, he lost all his Ferraris, and... We were left with nothing because of sexualism, because of lust. And I see now that that man sacrificed his life so that I wouldn't have to go through that. And I saw him go through that. And anyways, back to the end, hopefully, of, uh, of the acting out. I would love to get to recovery as soon as possible because it's the best part. So... I'm 19, and I, I started going to this church, and I was just desperate to, to feel something, feel something better, feel relief, and acting out wasn't really doing it, and I remember scrolling down websites, just like looking at pornography and thinking, I don't want to be doing this, I don't want to be doing this, why am I doing this? I would say that out loud while I'm doing it, and I couldn't not, so... It's January 2012, and I think, new year, new me. I'm going to stop acting out. (laughs) And I went three weeks without acting out. And I felt so high, I felt so spiritually connected, 
And then I was at this store and I felt someone was lusting after me. And I fed it, I drank it in, and I, I just waited for them outside the store. We exchanged a few words, I followed them to their apartment, acted out, and that was it. I left feeling so disappointed and numb. Because I thought, I was doing such a good job. That sucks, what happened? And about a couple weeks later, that new church that I had started going to had a little flyer, and in their flyer, they had this men's sexual integrity group. They were advertising it. And I thought, I really only thought I had a porn problem. Because I didn't realize the extent of everything that I was doing until I got here. So I thought, all right, all right. Reluctantly, I, I signed up, and I thought, oh, God, maybe I can limit my porn. So then I signed up, and that eight-week-long group was led by two sexaholics. And it was a small group of, of men, and we did a mini inventory. And I remember I shared just a couple of the things that I was doing with them, and I just started to cry because it was hitting me. Because I had so much shame for the acting out that I was doing, and I hated doing what I was doing, that I wanted to see myself in a different light, that I would start taking advantage of girls at parties. I would just try to feel affirmed by anyone who would do it. And so... When I was able to share those things honestly with some people and I was able to to realize how it was impacting me, I wanted to change. So after those eight weeks, after hearing a little bit of my story, uh, the, the two leaders told me, hey, you should definitely come to SA, to an SA meeting this Saturday morning. And... I was super scared. I was really afraid. And I thought, no, I don't know. But I did. Because after those eight weeks, I had eight weeks of sobriety because I was reading the literature. I was making a phone call every day and I was showing up to that group. And I thought, I don't want to let these guys down. I'm so afraid of telling them what I'm really doing. And I can't tell them that. So the shame and the fear (laughs) and the actions of the program were keeping me sober for those first two months. I showed up to my first SM meeting, and about two weeks later, one of those leaders was like, hey, I was talking to my sponsor. We think it'd be a really good idea if I sponsored you. And I said, yes, please. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so my sponsor got me. And uh, I remember thinking that one of the hardest things to give up in my acting out, because this was, I remember during step zero, we were supposed to get rid of the telephones. We were supposed to get rid of our stash. We were supposed to get rid of everything that would be a trigger to us. And so I did that. And in doing that, I had to email some people and let them know, hey, I, I'm not doing that anymore. I can't meet up anymore. I joined this, this men's sexual integrity group. It's going to be a short little thing. <laughs> and I got, I got a response that was like paragraphs long from someone I was acting out with telling me how church and religion didn't work. And I remember crying so much, thinking, I I got on my knees that day, and I remember thinking, God, I dare you to let me trust you. Because this, I didn't want to stop acting out with some people. I didn't want to stop being offered to be flown to places to act out with people. Because it felt nice. It felt good to be affirmed in that way. And so I turned down lust in that way, and 
I dared God to let me trust him, and he hasn't let me down yet. And what's really cool <laughs> is how, yeah, those those people were saying, like, come on, I'll fly you to, to New York, and we can stay at this hotel. And um, when I said no to that and I said yes to God, God took me to even further and even better places. And he took me the sexaholic that was acting out in the most sordid spots, in like the dingy, darkest, grossest spots with gross people, to go see some of the world's most beautiful sights. Um, and so that was step zero. And then I started doing step one. And I wasn't as honest as I just now was with you guys in my first step one because I was still too afraid to let my sponsor know everything that I was doing. And then I also forgot that I had gone to the strip clubs, the porn shops, and the bathhouses until I was 18 months sober. I was so ready to run into the loving arms of God that I didn't want to open that door once I got into SA. And so I changed everything I was doing. I changed the people I was acting out with. I changed things I was eating, things I was drinking. I stopped smoking. My sponsor told me I had to stop drinking because it was illegal because I was only 19. <laughs> and then uh, the withdrawals in that time period were, <laughs> were awful. I would start crying because I didn't know how to surrender until step three. And so then I got to step three and I learned how to surrender. I learned that I, I get into this posture now where I face my palms up and I just say, God, I surrender these thoughts to you. Or God, please fill me up with whatever it is I'm looking for in that person. And I remember in my addiction, whenever I was with someone one-on-one, I would, I would think like, how can I manipulate them? How can I, how can I just take a little bit of lust and, or get them to act out with me? Or how can I get them drunk so then we can act out? And now I can be a one-on-one with people and I can be a safe, caring, compassionate person. And I don't feel like a monster. And I can really be there for my friends. I can be there for my family. And I can be the son that I'm supposed to be. I can be the brother I'm supposed to be. And I can be the friend that I'm supposed to be. And I can be the sponsor I'm supposed to be. Because lust isn't ruining or running my life anymore. And so... Year one went by and I, I was shocked. I don't even remember what happened my first year. I feel like my life didn't even start until year two in the program, in sobriety. And uh, my family bought me a new car because they saw a change in me. And they said they wanted to continue to let that grow. And then year three came along. And I graduated, topped my class with the most prestigious award from my university and uh, felt like I could rule the world, but it was really just my higher power keeping me sober, working through me and letting the promises come true in that. Because like I said, everything sucked. Everything that I did sucked. And then I got into the program, I stayed sober, and God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And so now I practice these principles in all my affairs. My primary purpose is to carry the message. I am self-supporting through my own contributions. And I try to be a program of attraction, not promotion. And I heard that to be grateful is to share. And I am so grateful for this program. I'm so grateful for my life now. And I want to share it with anyone who's willing to listen. And I, today, 
My life looks very different than it did five years ago. I, I try to call my mother at least once a week. Uh, it was, we don't have the best relationship, but thanks to this program, I'm doing a living amends and it's, it's working. And, um, I'm flying her to Mexico. We're going to go there for a week and a couple weeks. And I, I'm showing up to everything in my life. Every time I get a phone call, I show up and I answer it or I try to. And I've just learned to show up for life thanks to this program. And I've learned to surrender everything to God. This morning, usually now every morning this year, I've just woken up and the first words that come out of my mouth are thank you. Or thank you, God. Or I love you, God. And those are the things that I say to start off my day. And then I fall out of my bed onto my knees and I just start praying, God, divorce me of any self-seeking, self-pitying, or dishonest thoughts and help me practice patience, tolerance, and love. Because Not because I, I want to be this amazing person or good person, but because I know I'm supposed to be a channel for my higher power to use me. And when I'm not working my program, I'm not a channel, and I just cause destruction, and I hate life, and shame starts to run my life. I feel like shame is the thing that was running my lust. And I sometimes feel like I'm more addicted to that than lust. And so I will, I will end with this. It's in the chapter, Working with Others, in the AA Big Book. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. Thank you guys for my sobriety. Well, I speak from the Essanon point of view, and I just want to encourage you for an amazing conference that we've just had, full of fellowship and program and speakers and meetings and shares. We are full, and I am so grateful. Please be aware, tomorrow you might be tired. Work your program. <laughs> Have time with your um your your uh, morning daily time with God, seek out fellowship, go to meetings, and please share the message. We are full, but there is that lull that happens. So protect yourself, take care of yourself, and I speak once again from the SNM point of view. So take it. But this has been an amazing weekend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if we can all make a big circle. Join hands with the serenity prayer. like to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for sa members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the daily reprieve by going to donate 
thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.